0: As I get into the Word of God today, and we're teaching about living the extraordinarily blessed life, that there is a dimension beyond just being blessed to being extraordinarily blessed. And we see some believers that that happens to, and others it doesn't. I'm going to explain one of the reasons why today. But before I do, I want to pose a question. Why do you come to church? Why? Why? Seriously, it's it's an important question. And sometimes why you do something determines whether the what you're doing is really significant or not. In the course of my life, I, I've had an opportunity to preach in thousands of churches. For those of you that are visiting, don't think that's an exaggeration. I spent 19 years of my life traveling as a crusade evangelist. Two and three night and one night meetings, all of the states, 102 different nations. I've continued to do that. I would preach all of these years, and I've been in ministry over 45 years now. And during the same time, many of those, I would preach five or six times in a day. So when I tell you that I have spent a lot of time in different places with different congregations, I want to tell you that really is the truth, and I'm not setting myself up as any expert. It's just that I think that that helps me believe that what I'm about to say really is a correct observation. I'll tell you this. During all of those years of traveling, the one thing I profoundly missed was connecting with people. Being here one night, another place two, another place three, it was really, really difficult. I've often said, if we get to heaven and there's no social life, God and I are going to sit down and have a little chat together because I've sacrificed my social life in this, in this world, literally. Don't have time to hardly do anything else other than just work in the kingdom. And, you know, I love what I do, so don't misunderstand, but I'm misconnecting with people. Can't wait till we get our new building. And I want you to pray, continue to give. Right now, we have a Friday night service, a Saturday night, four on Sunday morning, and a Sunday afternoon service, Wednesday night Bible study. By the way, I hear that Jade's done phenomenal in that series. And if you're not in it, you'll want to be here. And and then in addition to that, a young adult service. And we have, on top of that, 11 children's churches going on. Amen. So we have a lot of church around here. And we stay busy it really is the work of God. (laughs) Work is the appropriate term, but I love what I do. But every once in a while, I just stop and I ask myself, why am I doing this? Why do I go to church? And I've seen some people, I've met people that go out of a sense of duty. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's our Christian duty to go to church. And you can tell it when they walk in. They got that set, determined look like I had to drag myself there by the nap of my neck, but I'm doing my duty. Amen. Others out of a sense of obligation. Maybe there is in that a certain feeling that they need to be reciprocal, and I'll explain. Many times people come to God during enormous crises in their life. And so maybe a child was in a hospital or there was an emergency in a family, a wife or husband got a bad diagnosis. And someone from the church, maybe a pastor or church member came and ministered. And now that God turned that thing around as an expression of their gratitude and thankfulness to be reciprocal, they go to the house of God. And that's commendable. But there's also the fact That exists. That many people who come to church actually are still in a state of need in their life. And just last Sunday, uh, as I was coming in one of the services, a gentleman stopped me in the hall. Brother, stopped me. He may even be here in this service. He blessed me so much. I was racing between services, and they were waiting on me here. And um, he said, "Can I take a moment and just talk to you?" And I said. Well, he said, I've got a story. It's something I want to share with you. And I said, I'd love to hear it. I won't have but just a couple of minutes. They're waiting on me inside, but I'll stop. And, And, you know, I knew they were waiting. But when he told me his story, It made me realize how much, again, I miss connecting with people to hear their stories. I can't wait till we have a building big enough that we won't have to have all these services and I can take the time to meet with folk in between services, you know, and just get to know people again. I miss that. I really miss that. And he shared with me, he said, my wife and I were getting a divorce and we were seven days away from a divorce being final when we visited church and it turned our life around one Sunday and our marriage was saved. Amen. I don't know how many people could even be here today that are in that state of need in one way or another, in one area of your life or another. And those are all compelling reasons to come. But on the other hand, I've watched that some people come to church not as an act of duty or out of a sense of obligation or the need for reciprocity or even because of a need in their life. But some people come because it's the joy of their life to be in the house of God. Amen. And I happen to be one of those people. I'm not just a staff person or a pastor who's here because it's my job to be here. And frankly, if I knew that we had anybody on staff that felt that way, I really would like for them to find something else they they would be happier doing. Because if there's one thing I want to communicate to our people at every level of leadership on down, it's that church ought to be the highlight of your week. Hearing the Word of God ought to be the penultimate desire of your life. And I'm going to talk to you about why that is the case. I come to the house of God and literally when I get in my car after this service and leave, I will already be looking forward to next Sunday. There's not a Sunday that I leave that I'm not looking forward to the next service before I drive off the platform or, or the, 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 the parking lot and leave the platform. I love being in church. We've been in this text Psalms 1 and verse 1 through 4, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, sits in the seat of the scornful, his delight is in the law of the Lord. In his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted. And I've been emphasizing that word planted because I'm, I've been teaching a series since the first of the year on planted, fruitful, and flourishing. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Last two weeks, I've been teaching from this passage, Psalms 92, verses 12 through 15. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon, those who are planted. And the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age. They shall be fl- fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. And I'm looking, as I have for the last couple of weeks, at that those four, those four words in verse 14. They shall bear fruit. We talked about being planted. Now we're talking about bearing fruit. What is the secret to manifesting Christ in your life? I want to ask that question now. What's the secret to living the supernatural life of the extraordinarily blessed person? Is there any particular strategy that I can employ a trick that I can use that will help me get there faster. I personally believe there is. I also think it's the same strategy that if employed would help us be more effective in reaching the lost world. I'll get to it in just a moment. Let me just say it like this. Sometimes it can be right in front of you and you don't see it. The solution oftentimes is so simple that we overlook it. Have you ever had that experience? Lay your keys down and go through the whole house turning it upside down, and there they are right on the table where you left them. I had that happen just a couple of weeks ago. Anybody beside me do that? And you swear your wife took them and hit them somewhere. Amen. She's not here, so I can say that right now. She was taking a family day. We took a couple of family days this week. Went to New Orleans. First time I've been there in years. I have a favorite restaurant if you're ever over there. It's called K. Paul's. And do you know the guy Paul Prudhomme, the chef Paul Prudhomme? If you haven't um, ever seen him, just Google him. A big, big jolly guy from Opelousas, Louisiana, had a beard. He's gone on to the next life now. He died just three or four years ago. But when we first started going to his restaurant, I'm going to just tell you a story, and and no, I don't want anybody to be uncomfortable, and I'm not picking fun at him. He was so big, he took two chairs like this. They were wooden chairs, and put them side by side and sat on both of them, and still managed to hang over on each side. Amen. A really big guy. He loved his cooking, and if you ever eat it, you'll understand why. There's a difference in in Creole cooking and Cajun cooking. There is. I hear some of you saying amen. I'm making some of you happy. Am I preaching good already? Amen. I'll tell you what the difference is. If you're not from Louisiana, you might not know this. Cajun is the darker roux. It doesn't use the tomatoes and the okra as much. Creole uses the okra and the tomatoes. I personally love Cajun gumbo because I grew up. That's that real dark roux, you know. You stick your spoon and you can't the spoon disappears when it goes. Amen. It's dark. Oh boy! And Paul Prudhomme can cook a mean gumbo, or could his staff that he mentored still does. Now we were sitting there at his table, enjoying. Yeah, you got got it right, gumbo. I have a granddaughter that's an incredible gymnast and she is with a, a, a group of um, competitive cheerleaders and she's at a point now they're going to have to transition her to another team that's that's more advanced because she is unbelievable. And they were in a national competition in New Orleans this weekend. That's what that was all about. And so the family asked me to come in a day early and go down there and that's what I did. And uh, I didn't need to have my arm twisted to ask to go. It's been years since I've been there. And I thought one thing. They said, New Orleans, New Orleans equals Paul Prudhomme's to me, a K Paul's. and So it's on Charter Street. I went down there, and I absolutely had the time of my life and came back yesterday. But while I was there, I not only got to enjoy good food, but it dawned on me I haven't told you a good Cajun joke in a long time. And since that's my culture, right, Boudreaux got a letter in the mail, (laughs) and it was from his mother, and he opened it, and she said, Boudreaux, Sha, I done got bad news for you. Tree of your best, not three, tree of your best friends just died. Yesterday, your friend Thibodeau and four of your other friends went riding in the back roads. And Thibodeau was driving and one sat in the front with him while the others sat in the bed of the truck behind the cab. Somehow, while he was driving, he drove off the road and the truck ran into the bayou. Luckily, Thibodeau and the passenger were able to escape the sunken vehicle and get to safety. Sadly, Boudreau, I have to inform you the other tree in the back were not so lucky. They couldn't get the tailgate down. Go home and think about it. Somebody will explain it to you later. Okay. What is the secret to manifesting? The extraordinarily blessed life, it might be as simple as getting the tailgate down. I want to talk to you today, part two, the potential in a seed. Father, speak a word to us right now that will transform us, that will cause everything that consists of your kingdom and your desire for our lives to grow within us, we ask in Jesus' name. I want to begin today by pointing out that everything that is great in life began very small. It began as a seed. Whether it's a great company, a great invention, a ministry, a career, great relationship, Everything starts small and grows as it is developed. Speaking of great companies, Stephen Jobs and Steve Wozniak began Apple computers in the garage of their home. The garage of Stephen Jobs' home. Was it four years ago, roughly? We were having these major budgetary crisis when President Obama and Congress could not decide, you know, get together to work out a budget. You remember that? We ended up losing our superior rating in the credit market as a nation because they were unable to get all that resolved. And as all of that was being played out, and we were hearing about it every day in the news, you might have overlooked an announcement that they made about Apple computers. From its small ignominious beginning in the garage of Stephen Jobs' home, Apple computers had grown to such a place that at the same time we as a nation were struggling with our budget, they had more cash reserves on hand than the entire federal government did of the 50 states of the United States of America. Huge. Didn't start that way. Many of the great things in life Many of the great things in your life start out with just a little seed. It might be like an idea. That's what Stephen Jobs and Steve Wozniak began with, just an idea. It could be a relationship. It begins small. A glance across a room, an introduction, a chemistry, an awareness that there's something meshing here and determines whether it grows beyond that or not. Or it's just a, hello, how are you, my name's so-and-so, great to meet you, see you around. And whether it moves from that or beyond that to possibly a relationship that ends up in the covenant of marriage is all determined by how that seed of that initial meeting grows. Same thing is true with a career. Your education begins very small, a class. The job that maybe you're extremely good at right now. My guess is when you first began, you're like everybody else, you were all thumbs. Didn't know your way around. Small things often characterize the beginnings of things that become great later on. I think of the kingdom of God. It began in the least impressive manner that you could possibly imagine. With an itinerant preacher that in his entire life never traveled over 400 miles away from the city of Bethlehem where he was born. Most people that blows their mind to know that Jesus never traveled over 400 miles away from where Mary gave birth to him. And Jesus one time asked this question, Mark 4, 30 through 32. To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? it is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. I'll never forget the first time this passage came to life to me. It was the first time I ever went to the Holy Lands. We were on one of these, had been in one, some of these evangelistic meetings that I mentioned in the northern part of the state of Mississippi. And Back in those days, it maybe it's still like that, I don't know. But they almost starved a preacher to death, I mean, seriously speaking. And Jerry and I struggled to get by financially all of those years. But we had had great revivals, and that little group of churches, and there were some great churches where we had had great meetings. They decided they wanted to do something special for us. And so you know what they did? They organized a trip for Jerry and I to go to the Holy Land for the first time. If I had left it up to me, I probably never would have gone. Because it's like, you know, the people I fly with. I fly out of Houston, Oil City, right? Which means I oftentimes meet a lot of the same people on airplanes. Seriously, I do. And... They're from the oil field. I'm from church. I'm going to do ministry. They're involved in engineering and oil, or one of the support tech industries associated with oil. And they always ask me this question. We see you traveling. What are you going to do with all your frequent flyer miles? Where are you going to go? And I look at them and say, go? You've got to be kidding. Hey, I don't want to go anywhere. That's what I do all the time. I want to be home. That's what I'm looking forward to. But whenever... We went to the Holy Land. Had it not been for someone else that made the way, at that point in my life, I'd already maxed out on all of the travel I personally wanted to do. But we went because they were kind enough to provide a ticket. And I'm so glad that we did because it profoundly impacted the way I view Scripture. My understanding of the geography of the Bible completely changed. Events of the Bible came alive to me in a way that they had not before, and this was one of the passages that came to life. I still remember, you're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. I still remember the guide's name the day we stood beside a tree, and he turned and he said, this is a mustard tree. His name was David. He was a Jewish guide with a profound understanding of Old Testament scripture and had pretty near memorized the first five books of the New Testament. He said, this is a mustard tree. And he quoted from this passage that I read where Jesus was describing the mustard tree and there we were standing beside it. That's not us, that's another picture from the internet. But it was just like that, (laughs) amen. I didn't realize you had that up, Robert. Boy, that's good timing, there we were, amen. Amen. That's me right there in the middle. No, it isn't. (laughs) I got it off the internet, okay? Just so you could see what a mustard tree looks like. that's, That's good timing back there, amen. And David reached up and he pulled one of the pods of the mustard seed tree off of a branch and handed it to me. And when I say a pod, you know the difference in a pod and a seed, right? A pod is made of organic material, but it contains many seeds within inside of it, and what happens is, is that as that pod shrivels, it falls to the ground, it shrivels, it gets old, it breaks open and that releases the seeds inside a seed pod to be scattered by the wind. And it so profoundly affected me, what I'm about to describe that I not only remember his name, I remember that it was partly cloudy that day. And that was in 1977. I remember it was very warm that day. Everything about that moment suddenly came to life in a vivid manner because of what happened next. When he handed me that pod, this is what he handed me. I want you to see this. These are pods from a mustard tree. That's not the seeds, that's the pods going to the next one, and they fall to the ground and they dry and they shrivel up and they become like that and the the husk breaks open and maybe you step on it or an animal steps on it or it just cracks because it's brittle and the heat and inside of it are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of little, almost dust-sized particles that are the actual seed. And when Jesus said the seed of the mustard is is the smallest seed and it becomes a great tree, well, you can see why he said that now. And he said, crush the pod, and I crushed it in my hand. And when I did... All of these little seeds were there and the wind took most of them away and the little breeze that was blowing, it was a really warm day. And I kept one on my fingertip and looked at it and it was so small that if you were to take a number two pencil and put it in a sharpener and sharpen it to a very fine point and take a white piece of paper and just touch the end of the pencil lead to the paper, the resulting tiny dot that you would almost overlook unless you knew where it was at was how big that mustard seed was. And that pod was filled with, with dozens and dozens of them. I'll never forget that as long as I lived. Because it occurred to me that the kingdom of God started really, really small. And that it grew into something incredible. And there's not a corner of the earth anywhere today where the kingdom of God is not growing. Even in Syria, in the middle of ISIS territory, there are born-again believers that are there. That's part of the genocide that they're carrying out right now is an attack against Christians. Saddam Hussein actually had on his cab- in his cabinet born-again believers in Iraq and Iran and Syria and, and some of the places in the world where you would least think it could possibly happen. The kingdom of God is spread because, you see, the seed that we're talking about is the Word of God. And there is no power, more powerful seed that exists in all of the world than the Word of God. But then this begs the question, if we're talking about the kingdom, where is it? And I want to ask you a question. Um, I want to ask you this question. This is my third question. Where do you think the kingdom of God is at? Yeah, i give you a hint because we often indicate that we don't know by the way we answer that question. I hear people say, I'm in the kingdom or we're in the kingdom. No, you're not in the kingdom. Listen to this. Luke 17, 20 and 21. Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. You're not in the kingdom. The kingdom is in you. I wish I could hear somebody say amen right now. And its growth within our lives depends upon what we do with the seed that is planted within us. Seed and how it produces a harvest is one of the greatest miracles of our world. A seed will literally remain a seed forever. It won't ever be anything else but a seed. It can go into dormancy. That's what science calls it. A seed can literally hibernate. It becomes dormant. And yet, locked inside it, century after century after century, is all of this potential. And that's what I'm talking about, the potential of the seed. Locked inside of the promise that God has given you, though it may be dormant right now, there's incredible potential. If you've got the Word of God in your heart, it literally has the power to become like that tree that you saw a while ago. One little promise, and our thinking about that is, I think, maybe a little bit off base. We think, I need, to, I need to get another promise. No, the one you got is all it takes. Amen. But I'm going to show you something in just a moment. And I'm not, talking, I'm not denigrating getting additional promises. But, but look, God has set this thing up. The economy of life is set up by God. In such a manner that he deliberately selected the methodology of seed to ensure the multiplication of living things. God chose that. Look at Genesis 8 and 22. God speaks to Noah while the earth remains. How long is it going to last? While the earth remains. There will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God said it's irrevocably tied together as summer and winter are, As day and night are. You can't have one without having the other. That sow is seed time and harvest. If you sow a seed, there will be a harvest. And if there is a harvest, it means there's new seed. Amen. And here's what's amazing. One seed holds the promise of an entire harvest. That's what Jesus is saying. That one tiny seed will become a complete, entire mustard tree all by itself. Why? Because it contains all the DNA necessary to completely reproduce everything that gave it. Amen. Look at an apple tree, for example. A single apple seed can recreate a complete and entire apple tree. One apple seed can do that. A single apple tree that is grown commercially, maybe not the one in your backyard, right? but the apple trees that are grown commercially in the orchards in places like Oregon and, and Indiana and, and various places around, they're fertilized and they're pruned properly and, and they have horticulturalists that take care of them. And the average apple tree can produce 1,200 apples in a season. Do you know that an apple tree, an apple rather, contains a number of seed pods within its core? Most of you might not have realized that's what those are. And that the average pod contains one to two seeds. The average apple will have between five to ten seeds in it. Five to ten seeds. And that means that if you have one tree that produces 1,200 apples and each apple has five to ten seeds, that's each tree in one season can start 6,000 to 12,000 new trees if you plant every seed that is produced. I, I, I need somebody to just let me know you're, you're hearing me. The multiplication factor is incredible. It's, and I want to say this too. That's an entire orchard. And no matter how long you stand there and say, I claim pears from this apple tree, it's not going to produce pears. Because it is genetically hardwired to produce apples. Every seed has a particular hardwiring already built into it. And you can't change that. And that's why the Bible says whatever a man sows, that he's going to reap. You can say, I claim it in Jesus' name. There are going to be pears on this thing. You can get out and go in intercession and travail. But at the harvest season, it's still going to produce apples. It's not going to produce pears. Amen. Amen. Why? Oh, my God, I feel the Holy Spirit here. Because the DNA will not allow it to do what it wants to do. It's hardwired to do what God told it to do. Amen. It's been programmed in advance by God When God gives you a word, that word may be very small, but that's really all you need for a miracle to happen. Because the very word God spoke to you is hardwired to ensure that everything God said comes to pass in exactly the way that God said it. All you have to do is cultivate a proper environment for that seed to begin to grow in your life. And the reason you need to cultivate it is because, as I said, seed can go into dormancy. Amen. Just as a seed is pre-programmed with everything it needs to become what it's supposed to be, the Scripture tells us the Word of God is the seed that exists in our lives. That is the root or the foundational cause for which the effect is the birth of the kingdom. Look at this in Luke 8, 11, The seed is the word of God. Say it. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. I'm talking to some of you that have seed that has been put in your heart. And some of you have seed in the hearts of your children. You haven't seen it come to maturity yet. But let me tell you, that seed is just going into dormancy. It's in hibernation. It doesn't lose its efficaciousness. It doesn't cease to have vitality. The potential is still there. If you received a word from God that hasn't come to pass, what I want to tell you is that word is still lingering over your life and it still has the ability to manifest itself and produce everything that God said would happen. Amen. And those seeds are generally very small, and sometimes even microscopic in size. The potential of an individual seed is absolutely amazing. As I pointed out a while ago, one apple tree can literally create an orchard. Let me tell you something you might not know. The average ear of corn <laughs> has 800 kernels on every ear of corn. Did I take the time to count them? No, I went to Google. Amen. Amen. You want to go check it out? Go check it out and come back and tell me how many you get. Amen. Most corn that is produced commercially produces two ears per stalk. Some will produce three or four. We've got some folk here today that have probably raised a garden or two in their life. There's even one variety called the six-shooter. Have you ever heard of it? It produces six ears on one stalk every season. But most of the commercially viable corn that is raised is purposely and genetically produced to produce two good ears so that it doesn't, as it were, have to siphon off any of its additional potency into ears that don't develop as well. So they'd rather have two good ears than they would three that are not so good, or four. That's the commercial farmers throughout Iowa and and those parts of the United States, uh, Illinois, Illinois, and and, and Indiana, and all through that part of the world, and so each ear of corn has approximately 800 kernels on it. Each one of them is capable of growing a new corn plant, since a single stalk can produce two to four ears, but the average commercially is two, we'll use two as the example. That means on every stalk, there's 1,600 new corn plants that are capable of being produced from the two ears that it is growing. Now, if you were to plant those, it means that you would literally go in one season from one kernel of corn to 1,600 corn plants that if they each have two ears of corn with 800 kernels per ear, you have gone literally in the course of just two seasons from, two, from one corn kernel of corn to 2,560,000 kernels or seeds. That's just in two seasons. Do the same thing again the third season. And if everything holds true, two ears per stalk, average of 800 kernels per ear, and you plant everything and don't eat it, at the end of the third season, you will have... Remember, you started with one seed. At the end of the third season you will have 4 billion, 96 million seeds to plant or eat at your discretion. Here's my point. I ask you why you come to the house of God. Because some of you have been sitting here waiting for a word to grow in you for a long, long time. And my point is, it's growing. And the kingdom doesn't come with observation. And someday that word God spoke over you is going to come to pass. But there is a way to make it happen faster. Because who said you have to start with one kernel of corn? Oh, don't worry, you're afraid I'm getting ready to talk about giving right now, but I'm not. I'm talking about manifesting the kingdom in your life. I'm talking about manifesting the character. I'm talking about having victory. I'm talking about living the extraordinarily blessed life. Who said you have to plant one seed? Suppose you're one of those that the reason you go to church is not out of a sense of obligation or because it's your duty. You come because you want all the seeds you can get and and you want all of the words you can have poured into your life. In the same three-year period, if you start with 10 seed instead of just one, instead of having 4 billion, 96 million new seeds in three seasons you will have 40 billion 960 million at the end of the third season I believe that one of the great problems of where we're living right now is we're not getting enough of the seed in our lives We're not getting enough word in our hearts. Hello, I'm preaching better than you're responding. I don't mind saying that. That's okay. Just be quiet. Preach it, pastor. I believe I will. Because we need all the word we can get in our hearts. Amen. If we're going to manifest the promises of God, we need as much of the word as we can get. Because the word itself never loses its efficaciousness or its vitality or its viability. Look at this, 1 Peter 1 and 23. We have been born again, not of corruptible seed. Say it with me. But of what? Incorruptible. Through what? The word of God. Which does what? I need somebody to say it lives and abides Forever. One seed in your life can have immediate effect. It can cause enormous transformation. Many years ago, in this church, we had a singing group come that was really popular back in the day. And now they're older, and I think most of them are retired. I think the group is still around, only it's young guys in it now. But um, the group was the the Imperials. James, you remember, what was the guy's name? You remember the, the big Indian fellow? Amer- Ormond Morales, amen. Boy, that guy could sing bass. He was one of the founding members of the group. And they had a song that to this day is still one of my favorites. It, the song goes like this, praise the Lord. He can work through those who praise him. Praise the Lord for our God inhabits praise. Wow they had a young guy singing lead for him because the the original lead singer had retired from the group. As I mentioned, they were getting up in years now. And this young singer was from Russia, and he shared the story of how he was converted. His family was raised in communist Russia as atheists, but his grandfather was walking home one day in the snow, and he saw a piece of paper and stopped and picked it up and put it in his pocket. It was a page from a book, and books were scarce during that time in communist Russia. And he brought it home, and it turned out to be a page from the New Testament gospel of St. John. And it had on it John 3, 16. And his granddad that beat his family was a drunk and an atheist read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he asked God, did you mean it? And God gave that man a personal encounter without anybody else around to even guide him. And he got saved and became a preacher of the gospel and spent, if I remember the young man's testimony, over 12 years of his life in prison for preaching the gospel. And his son had a son that immigrated to the United States and joined the gospel group that I just mentioned. I was standing at the gate this past week in Africa getting ready to catch the plane, and it humbled me. And forgive me but if I get emotional, but it profoundly moved me. The man next to me and I began to talk, and he was an outgoing fellow, a likable guy, and and we engaged in conversation. We were a half an hour late boarding the flight, and there had been a mechanical problem, and so he and I spent some time talking. Turned out he was in Africa with Cliff Bible translators, and he was returning from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and he shared with me there are over 600 tribes with their own language that have no Bible. And he was just returning with a group of people. And they had finished the translation of the New Testament into a Bible for one of those tribes. And the people that were traveling with him were people who had given and contributed money for the project. And so they had a a big dedication of the Bible. And they'd given it out throughout the villages. And and people were rejoicing. We've got the Bible. We've got the Word of God. (laughs) And and he shared with me, he said, the story of how the Bible changes lives is incredible. He said, "One one of our stories, he said, comes out of Red China, where there was a man in communist China that was arrested and put in prison for years. And while he was there, he was an atheist now. But, of course, he's heard people talk about Jesus and this crazy group of people, Christians and so forth. While he was there, he did something to anger one of the guards. And he was assigned the task of cleaning the officers' toilets and the officers' quarters as punishment. And I'm not making the story up. And I stood there and tears swelled up in my eyes. I'm going to tell you something that's really graphic, but I want to be as discreet as possible because it's not my intention to, to try and use any shock language here. But he said, the man noticed in the toilet that there was a sheet of paper that the, gourds, the gourd used when he went to take care of himself in the bathroom. It was wadded up and dirty. And it was his job to collect all of the refuge and then make sure it was disposed of and and properly burned. And he looked at it and he saw the, the name on the piece of paper, Jesus. And he had always been curious about Christianity. And he reached into all of that and pulled it out and washed it and put it in his pocket and took it to his bunk and hid it in his cot. And the next day, and he was assigned this task for several weeks, his punishment, and he went and every day, there he would find a page of the Bible. And what had happened was the guards had confiscated a Bible from a believer that they had found that was a Christian, and put him in prison, and the man had tried to sneak his Bible into the prison, and they had taken it away, and they were using it for tissue paper in the bathroom. And the guy went to the head guard and he said, could I have this job all the time? And they looked at him like he was crazy and said, what do you mean? He said, I want to clean the toilets. I promise I'll do a good job. And every day he would wash the pages of the Bible and hide them in his bunk. And in that manner, he managed to get most of the New Testament and he became born again and gave his heart to God. We need the Word of God in our lives. We have the Bible available, but most of us, most of us, to be very frank with you, we're content to get a little seed of the Word every week or two or three. And I want to ask you, Is that really the attitude that we ought to have toward the seed? There's potential in the Word of God for you to live the extraordinarily blessed life. And it all begins, even your conversion begins when the seed is planted. You may have some seed lying dormant in your heart right now, and you know what you need? You need a good Holy Ghost rain to come rain upon you. God send the rain. God send the rain. Let the let your spirit come. And I close. Have you ever, I'm sure you've probably done this around your house as a kid. Somebody has left a board lying on the ground. That ever happened? Maybe there was a project that were <laughs> happened when I was a kid because my granddad was always building things like barns and chicken coops and stuff like that. And so there was a board lying on the ground. And I'll never forget as a child, I always, when I found them, loved to turn them over and see what was underneath because there would be this this barren place where nothing was growing because that board had blocked out access to sunlight. But then I would notice, and you have too, that over the next weeks and days upon being exposed to sunlight now, and especially if rain came, that it was amazing what would be growing there where there was nothing but bare earth before. And you don't know what may happen if God would send a good Holy Ghost rain in your life right now. You don't know what might take place.